moms are usually the ones who get asked the dreaded question first. Where do I come from? Now, I'm pretty sure the reason why it's moms who get asked that question and not the dads is because dads will inevitably give one of one or two answers. And that is, the first is, in the hospital, or the second, go ask your mom. <laughs> that's, that's pretty much the universal uh, reality of life. But depending on how old the child in question is, of course, your answer is going to vary, where do I come from? But there is a very good answer to this question. And the very good answer of where I come from is found in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Because Moses gives us a gen general introduction to the universe in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. In these chapters, you find not son or daughter, you came from a rib. That's not what we're after here. But we find out, who are we? Where did we come from? How did things get so messed up? And we also find out, what on earth did God do about all this? Oh, not much. You know, he only visibly marked one person for life. He wiped out every single human being but eight. He confused all the languages... And God set in motion a family birthed from a pagan culture that gave birth under impossible circumstances to the family who would ultimately bring life and rest to everyone who would trust his promises. And that is one reason why we must trust the promises of God for us in Christ. Now, as you remember, we're taking a, a nice long stroll through Romans. And where we're coming next is Romans chapter 4, where Paul uses Abraham as his foil, as his uh, story that he is going to base the good news that he gives in Romans on. And so, it behooves us, as Paul turns in Romans chapter 4, to the greatest figure in, by Jewish reckoning in the Old Testament, it behooves us to have a, a brief reminder of the career of Abraham. And so, we are going to see here who this guy is that Paul is going to base so much of his theology on next time we get to Romans chapter 4. I want us to understand who Abraham was and why he was important so that when we get to him in Romans 4, we will understand better who God is in relation to us based upon his covenant for us. So the very first words after Moses ends his general introduction to the universe is in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now, the Lord, Yahweh, said to Abram, 
Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I don't think it's an accident that the very first words that we hear the Lord speak to Abraham are a command. So far as we know, in Genesis chapter 12, there are no other Yahweh worshipers on the planet. We don't know if that's true or not. But apparently there are not. Because God has to speak directly to Abraham and get him going. But we see something else here. That God speaks and Abraham knows it's God. There's there's no argument. There's no, Lord, prove yourself. There's no demand for some evidence so that I know really it's you, Lord. Abraham just knows. He hears the command Aye, aye, Captain. And he starts moving. But we also see, as we see this command, it's not an easy command. It's it's not just some, you know, run-of-the-mill, just kind of happy-go-lucky. Abe, pick up everything you have and leave. Your family, everything you've known, every that you've ever worshipped, your job. We don't know what kind of job Abraham had in Ur. Pick up and get out of Dodge. Now listen, I love camping and hiking. Vacation doesn't begin for me until I've got a fishing pole in my hand and no cell phone coverage. But I'm also quite fond of my house. I like where I live. I like the people that I live with. I like my garden. I like my trees. I like my tools. I like my books. Yeah, I think I'm part hobbit. So the command to pick up and get, go live the life of a vagabond, would be onerous to say the least. But God, while he gives Abraham this call to pick up and go be a a hobo, he gives him a promise. And what we'll find, and, and I don't get this from this text, but we get this over and over again. When you see a command in Scripture from God, there is a promise to uphold it. Not necessarily in the same passage. You need to know God's Word. You need to see where he promises over here something that affects this command. But where there is a command, there is also a promise. The first great theologian after the Bible was completed put this idea like this. He said, Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Augustine knew that God would make some pretty painful commands and he would give us what we needed to do it. So we find this promise and command combination here are, well, unique. In other words, what I mean by that is God doesn't command you to pick up and get out of Santa Maria. Quite the opposite, actually. 
You may be here in Santa Maria and think, I'm stuck in Santa Maria. But that means you are called to be faithful. You are called to press on right here where you are. And even though the promise, neither the promise nor the command here are specifically for you, they are for you in the sense that they are the basis on which the Abrahamic covenant is built. And that... Abraham became rich in more than one sense so that everyone who would trust the same God that he trusted would be rich in that sense as well. Abraham was the forerunner of Christ who became poor so that you and me and everyone else who would trust his promises would be rich spiritually. So, What do we do? We need to trust the same God that Abraham trusted. We need to put our faith in action. We need to go and follow that same God, even if that means right here in Santa Maria, California, or Podunk, South Dakota, or wherever else you might be. So we see Abe's story continues. Abe obeys the Lord and heads off to Canaan. He gets there and there's a famine... And so he heads to Egypt. And the first thing we know about Abraham after obeying God and becoming a vagabond is that he abandons Sarah, his wife, in Egypt. What a loser. What an idiot. What do you do with a guy like that? I mean, come on. He left his bride in the lurch to save his skin? Oh, yeah. Sounds like all the other messed up people who are in this room as well. We may not have sinned like him, but we're still the same losers and idiots as well because we reject the promises of God. We see him in chapter 13. Abe's boys and his nephew Lot's boys are fighting. And they're getting mad at each other. So Abe says, all right, listen. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. Lot, if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Evidently, Lot chooses right and he goes down. He gets down into the plain of Sodom and Gomorrah, which leads inevitably to chapter 14, where Lot finds himself in a real pickle. He got captured by the Five kings or three, I think it's five, anyways, five kings and three kings, they start fighting at each other. But Abraham goes and bails him out. Abraham does the right thing this time. He puts his life on the line to save his nephew. And it is right after this, it is right after Abraham takes this risk of faith, right after he didn't to save his wife, that we find the most important paragraph in all of Genesis as it concerns salvation history, as it concerns what we need to know to be saved. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the fight with the five kings, and the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham responded, 
Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, but your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, and he said, Look toward the heavens, and number the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now, when we get back to Romans chapter 4, we're going to see that Paul directly quotes this verse, Romans 15, 6, and he alludes to it twice. So this is the passage upon which Paul is going to base his understanding that we are saved by grace through faith. We're going to see that Paul takes his idea that trusting God's promises justifies the believer. In other words, acting on what God says to be true is what enables us to be counted righteousness. For it enables us to, for God to declare us in a right relationship with Him. Which is why I say the fundamental, boiled-down essence of Christianity is that you and I must trust God the promises of God for us in Christ. Now as we get here to Genesis chapter 15, we find that this is the second time that the Lord has spoken to Abraham. Years have gone by. We don't know how many, but years have gone by. And God has promised Abraham at least two things. He's going to give him land, and he's going to give him children. Up to this point, however many years have gone by, what does he have? Nada, nix, zilch, bupkis. Abraham doesn't have a thing in terms of the promise. We learned something here from the man of faith. Disappointment did not cause Abraham to doubt God. Disappointment did cause Abraham to struggle, though. What are you going to give me, God? Lots of money? Great house? Nice truck? What are you going to give me? Uh, I got no kids to pass it on to. I've got no land to call my own. Abraham was a man of faith, but he struggled. Do you know anybody like that? Raise your hand. Note, in his struggle, in his frustration, he still planned for the future. He knew who his heir would be, Eliezer of Damascus. And he kept moving forward. And it's in this moving forward, it's in this trusting in spite of the disappointment that Abraham is called by the author of Hebrews, the man of faith. And my friends, the Bible is not ashamed of its heroes. The Bible is quick to point out its flaws in the character of its champions while also helping us to see their virtues. God, in his double graciousness, rewarded Abraham with righteousness. 
God rewarded Abraham with a right standing with the personal creator God of the universe, even though it was God who held Abe up so that he would remain faithful. Double blessing. And praise Jesus for that. God holds us close to himself, and then he grants us righteousness because we are held close. Amen. I'll take that deal, right? But Abraham is struggling. Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? This is raw. This is unphotoshopped. This is the real deal. This is real pain coming from Abraham's cart. The Word of God tells it like it is. You know, I first trusted God's Word not because I thought all of the scientific statements were true. I was a naturalist. I believed the world was 15.3 billion years old. I was an existentialist. I just assumed the world was meaningless and was absurd. I mean, that's what we inherited from Darwin and Nietzsche, right? But that's when I went to the Bible. And what I found in the Bible, the first thing that drew me to thinking, there might be something here. And what 28, 20-some years later, I still hold on to, is this idea that in the Bible, I find a description of what people are really like. And it's ungarnished with the dross designed to fit a preconceived notion of human character from this psychologist or that psychologist or this theologian or that theologian. And this is true for Abraham and it's true for you. Elise Fitzpatrick said, we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe and we are more loved and welcomed than we ever dared hope. That is the truth. Because on the same day, you can be crushed by despair. Oh, I did it again. And then by God's grace, the Holy Spirit can lift you up and make you realize you are safe. And you are loved. My friend, that is true. Are there things I struggle with the young earth creationism? Yeah, there are. I, I call myself a young earth creationist and I, I, I think the earth is about 20,000 years old or so. I, I don't really come down hard on it. Are there things I struggle with that? Yeah, there still are. But this is what I know. The Bible is trustworthy. The Bible can be believed because it gives an accurate view of what's going on right here. So that's where I'm at. And I encourage you to trust the promises of God for you in Christ because they explain what is going on in your heart as well. And they give you hope. Again, the story of Abraham continues. Years go by. There's no land. There's no children. At least, there's no children of promise. And one convenient way of dividing the story of Abraham, if you, if you look at the whole story as a whole, is you see chapters 12 to 15 are, in one sense, all about the land portion of Abraham's promise. And chapters 16 through 21 is all about the children 
portion of the promise to Abraham. And when you look at the story in this way, the next face-to-face episode with the almighty, powerful king of the universe makes a lot more sense. We find it in Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am the Lord God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, listen, look, pay attention. My covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall you name, your name be called Abram, but you shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of many nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Now we see this interview with God happen 24 years after God first spoke to Abraham in Ur, and 13 years after Abraham mislistened to Sarah and got Hagar pregnant with Ishmael taking only the words of his bride, Sarah, Abraham did not seek to solve the problem in her heart. Oh Lord, how often have I been guilty of mislistening to my wife and children. But he took things into his own hands. Evidently, our man of faith was struggling with faith. He is doubting now. Not sure how God's going to come through on this whole problem, promise with kids thing. So he figures, I got an idea. Not only that, but my wife said it's okay, so I'm good, right? Yet, in spite of such an obvious lack of faith, I mean, come on. Come on. That's a lack of faith. What can you do with a guy who lacks faith like that? In spite of such an obvious lack of faith, a lack of turning to God and asking, what would Yahweh do? God promises yet again to bless Abraham. And notice, he does it in the exact same realm in which Abraham had so grossly messed up. So spectacular was Abraham's sin in trying to make up for God's obvious deficiency and coming through on his promises. So spectacular was his sin that God should have rained fire and brimstone on Abraham's tent, but instead he poured life into Sarah's barren womb. Oh, grace. Grace. God's grace Grace that is greater than all Abram's sin. Grace that is greater than all my sin. Grace, unmerited favor, and power to accomplish kingdom purposes. Grace in the face of just being stupid. Grace. Breathe grace. You know why Moses tells the story of Abraham's stupidity? 
because he knew Greg Burtnett was coming. I mean, that guy is such an idiot sometimes. Grace. Grace in response to the feeblest of sparks of trust in a corrupt heart. Grace in the form of promises and grace in the form of keeping those promises in spite of us. Brothers and sisters, trust in the promises of God for you in Christ. Trust in God's grace. Now I did also notice something else significant in these verses. Abraham doesn't say anything. God doesn't give him a chance to say anything. Abe, you're listening, I'm talking. I love that. You don't need to talk, Abraham. I got this. You're covered. There's, there's nothing that you need to say, but I'm reaffirming my promise. And he gets him right where he's struggling. The promise is for children. Now, the promise of land is implied here, and there are some theologians who make a lot of hay out of that, but the promise here is specifically children. But the great surgeon of heaven always knows exactly where to aim his knife. The great surgeon of heaven knows that he is not finished scalpeling. He's scalpeling out that self-trust in Abraham's heart. And there was only one test to see if that pain was finished. Abraham, excuse me, in Genesis chapter 22, God calls Abraham to offer not his cows, not his tents, not his wife. God calls Abraham to offer Isaac. Get up and go and go to Mount Moriah. Without a word, Abe picks up his supplies and he starts marching. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. How many days did he walk? Knowing at the end of it his son wasn't walking back with him. Not sure. We do learn in part in Hebrews that at least part of Abraham's reasoning was, okay, well, Isaac is going to die, but God can raise even the dead from life. That is a man of faith. Are your dreams of the circumstances you really wish were true up in flames? Have relationships that are important to you died? Do you believe that God can raise the dead? I don't know what that would have been like. That would have been brutal pain. And some of you for years have hiked that hike. Brutal pain. 
Your God is trustworthy. Your God is worth putting all your faith in because he can raise even the dead. Oh, it's almost too painful to read, but in Genesis 22, starting in verse 10, Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham! And he said, Hineni, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. Here's an idea. Tonight, lay in bed and ask the Lord, what do I need to lay down? What are you asking me to lay down? Could be a thing. Maybe there's something that you have that you need to let go of. Could be a circumstance. This treasured ideal ideal of what it is that you think would be absolutely perfect and God would get all the glory for it. You may be asked to lay that down. Could be a relationship you have just wept over for years. And laying it down might, might, look like okay, Lord, I have beat myself up for my failures about this long enough. I'm going to lay her in your hands. I'm going to lay him in your hands because I can't. Trust in the promises of God for you in Christ. Breathe. I got to say once again, praise Jesus that we, are, we have solid reasons for believing we will never be asked to slaughter someone for the sake of our faith. This was a one-time deal. You will never be called on to kill anybody in your worship for the Lord. In fact, the opposite is true. The person that you need to kill is going to be your sinful self. Jesus says in Matthew, excuse me, John 15, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Here I want to emphasize one of these promises that I keep talking about. In this story, in this episode of Abraham's life, we see a promise. Unlike the promise for land and the promise for children that Abraham received, this promise is for you, the child of God. Let me reread verse 14. 
Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Put that in your pocket. You don't have to travel to Mount Moriah in order to cash this check in. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Is Moses reflecting on this story years later and saying, the Lord will provide for you in your need. Of course, our need is not the same as our desires. But Matthew records Jesus' words about this. Jesus says, Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Here's the key. In this episode concerning Abraham, he was seeking the kingdom of God. Okay, he didn't use those words. But it was certainly not Abraham's kingdom. You want me to give up my son? Are you crazy? Yep, that's exactly what I want. It wasn't Abraham's kingdom that he was after. It was the Lord's. And Jesus says, you're hungry, you need clothes, you need, you need drink. Insofar as these things are necessary for you to accomplish kingdom purposes, they will be given to you. Grace is power to accomplish God's kingdom purposes. Not Greg Burtnett's. Not yours. But His. God's kingdom purposes are not necessarily my own. That is why I must submit to his kingdom purposes if I'm going to have them. But he gives an even more explicit promise in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him graciously give us all things? What things? Every single thing you need to bring glory to God, joy to your heart, and growth to his kingdom. Is that all the things you want? Nope. Is it all the things to grow your kingdom, a brand new truck? Nope. Is it all the things that someone tells you it's your right to have? Uh Uh-uh. All the things that sparkle and shine and reach out to steal our hearts? Absolutely not. The all things are things that will one day, that, that will lead us to glorify Christ and not our own kingdom. Which is why we can trust the promises of God for us in Christ. Father Abraham is evidence that God will provide for you Father Abraham is an example of what God will do for those who trust him so that we will know that God will do the same for us. And in Romans 4, we will read these words. Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And the purpose was to make him the father of all who would believe... Raise your hand if that includes you. 
You will know it if it's true. He is the Father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to us as well and to make Him the Father of the circumcised who not, are not merely circumcised but also who walk in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. All that is talking about it's not about the law anymore. It's about putting the trust in the God behind the law. Now, all of this helps us to answer our original question. Where do I come from? Go ask your mom. Where do I come from? You, brother or sister, come from an imperfect man of faith who messed up royally and displayed a trust in his heavenly Father for more years than many of us have been alive. You come from a family of sinners and hypocrites among whom there is always room for one more. (laughs) That was a great point last week. You come from a past that has made you who you are but will not define or determine where you are going. You come from the God who loves you and will never leave you nor forsake you. And He has more than graciously proved, as He has more than graciously proved as He made you His child when He hung on the cross to prove that He would give you everything you need to bring Him glory, you joy, and growth to His kingdom. And that is why you and I must trust the promises of God for us in Jesus. Lord Almighty, we come to you because there is no one else before whom we can come. God, I pray that you would grant to us your grace, your unmerited favor that we simply do not deserve that is also power to accomplish your, your purposes in our lives today. God, do this in us and through us for your glory, for our joy, and for the growth of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.